So we're now on chapter six, the unlimited noble truths. And, uh, maybe just one more word before we jump in to the sutra that, um, you might find that this sutra is a little bit difficult to, um, to understand sometimes it gets, it's kind of wordy, but at the same time, not explaining everything. I think it's sometimes quite difficult, but there's so many gems of wisdom in here. And while we read sutras, it's, it's nice to understand our tradition. It's, I think that's a good reason to, to, to study sutras. We, we see where our, our Zen teachings are coming from, but most of all, uh, I hope that we can study sutras and and all the words of the Buddhas and ancestors as applying to our own direct experience right now, not as some kind of theoretical uh, teaching, but um, but actually about our experience. So it's just it is it's speaking exactly of our experience, but um, we have to kind of slowly unpack how that is so. I think. And, uh, in a, in a practice period discussion we had yesterday, someone brought up, they appreciate how the Buddha's teaching isn't like metaphysical. It's not asking us to believe in some like non-experiential, you know, cosmic stuff. Um, and I thought that's a great point. And maybe the sutra can sound metaphysical at times. I don't know, but I would propose again that, um, it's not making any, um, claims about anything that, uh, we can't verify for ourselves. So in that spirit, to verify this, these teachings for ourselves, and may this be so for the benefit of all beings, we, we continue. And uh, we're on chapter six, the unlimited noble truths. It's, it's a nice um, little commentary about the four noble truths, classic, you know, original first teaching ever of the Buddha, supposedly, the Four Noble Truths. But in this sutra, it's bringing out a kind of deeper meaning. So, um, it begins, uh, Bhagavan, world honored one, the disciples and Prateka Buddhas. Again, that's these, um, it's good to be familiar with these, these terms, the, the Shravakas and the Prateka Buddhas are these, um, uh, early Buddhist version of the disciples of the Buddha who, um, are, uh, focusing on their own personal awakening. And that's why the Mahayana Bodhisattva vehicle sometimes critiques them, even though we know they're amazing practitioners. It's saying there's, it's limited. There's, you can go beyond this personal liberation and, and, um, expand it to include all beings and for the benefit of all beings. That's why a lot of these Mahayana sutras poke a little bit at the disciples, the Shravakas and the Prateka Buddhas. So that's why this keeps coming up. Um, and here, Sri Maladevi is saying these Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas first saw the noble truths with their one knowledge that eliminates the latent stages of defilement. So um, 
it's saying that uh, it's a, language is a little hard here, but I think the meaning is that it's saying they did, of course, the Shravakas and Pradega Buddhas did realize the Four Noble Truths. That was the whole point of these early teachings. And it worked. They did realize them with this one knowledge. And I think this is saying it's not the complete story. Um, and they did eliminate or abandon the source of suffering, um, namely the it, defilements, greed, hate, and delusion, the, the clashes, and so on, that are the cause of suffering. That these are the practices. This is a nice, um, Description from early Buddhism of each of the four noble truths has a practice associated with it. The, the practice of, um, regarding the second noble truth, the origin of suffering, which is greed, hate, and delusion. The practice is to abandon or let go of, or here it says eliminate these, um, these mental afflictions. And they did that. The, uh, Shravakas and the Pratika Buddhists. They know suffering. So the first noble truth is suffering. And the practice associated with it is to understand or know suffering. They did that. They practice virtue or they practice the noble eightfold path. That's the fourth noble truth. The practice associated with it is to cultivate or practice the eightfold path. And they realize or verify extinction or cessation of suffering. That's the third noble truth. There's a cessation of suffering and they verified it. They realized it. So that's, again, standard early Buddhism. Uh, they understand these four noble truths very well, Sri Maladevi says. But, she goes on to say, they don't have the most supreme transcendental wisdom, but are gradually reaching the understanding of these four noble truths. So it's uh, interesting here. It's, a, it's pointing out that the early Buddhist model of the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas is a gradual practice. Whereas uh, she says here, the Dharma that's not gradually reached, you could understand it as it's a sudden understanding, is supreme transcendent wisdom. Bhagavan's supreme wisdom is like a diamond, Vajra. What's the image in, in uh, um, Vajra, which can mean diamond, is like indestructible wisdom, like nothing can destroy this wisdom. It's, it's as solid and unbreakable as diamond. And this perfect wisdom uh, is like reached instantly. That's how I'm understanding this. Rather than gradually working on gradually eliminating mental afflictions and thereby realizing the four noble truths. So it's maybe a little, little, um, comment on this new, this new path that Srimala Devi is bringing up is like a sudden, sudden school like Zen. Uh, skipping, skipping a paragraph here, moving to the next, uh, section. She says, the inconceivable wisdom of emptiness eliminates the stores of all defilements. So earlier, we just heard that, um, 
with this one knowledge or one kind of understanding, the Shravakas and Pratyekabuddhas were able to, to um, eliminate uh, these latent stages of defilement. Now, um, she's saying that the inconceivable wisdom of emptiness eliminates the stores that all the, all the collections of all defilements. So it's, it's not that, that the Shravakas and Prajekabuddhas were, were, um, not amazing practitioners that really worked through a lot of greed, hate, and delusion, but it goes beyond that, uh, this path now goes beyond what they realize is eliminates all, all possible, um, afflictions and all possible dualistic perceptions, including very subtle ones. And this is the wisdom of emptiness. Uh, Bhagavan, the ultimate wisdom that destroys or eliminates, removes, abandons all stores of defilement is called supreme wisdom. The initial wisdom of the noble truths realized by the Shravakas and Pratika Buddhas is not the ultimate wisdom, but is the wisdom that's turned towards or kind of directed in the right direction of supreme complete awakening. But it's not supreme complete awakening itself. A little hard this language, but maybe you can get the kind of the gist. This is often the style of these great vehicle sutras is they're saying this is like the most amazing thing ever. It goes beyond all the, all the earlier teachings and the sutra is no exception. Uh, so that's, um, there's something about this, these, um, new kind of understanding of the four noble truths that we're going to hear more about, uh, that goes beyond the earlier understanding of the Four Noble Truths. It kind of includes it, but goes deeper. And the next uh, chapter, seven, is called Jitagata Garva. So this is the first time this is where term has been introduced in the sutra, a major important term of the sutra, which you can hear more about at this Berkeley lecture tomorrow, if you like. It's all about Jitagata Garva. And... Uh, also called Buddha nature. In Sanskrit, Buddha Dhatu. And what we, what Zen much more commonly refers to as Buddha nature. And, uh, Buddha nature is like a major teaching of Zen. It's sometimes said that in Zen, awakening is awakening to recognizing, verifying, our Buddha nature and delusion is nothing more than not recognizing our Buddha nature. So you don't hear that kind of teaching so much in the early teachings. It's more Mahayana and in particular Zen. Tathagatagarbha. We talked a little about this before, but um, to review a little now that we're on this term. Tathagata is, uh, means the thus come one, an epithet for the Buddha, another name for the Buddha. Uh, and garba is an interesting term here that in Sanskrit can mean, um, 
embryo, womb, germ, um, the interior or middle of anything, the interior chamber or sanctuary of a temple, uh, the calyx of a flower. It can mean containing or being filled with. And uh, later, apparently, in um, la- later times in India, the term garba came to mean like the core or the heart or the pith or the essence of something. And apparently in modern um, Indian language, garba also means this like heart or core or pith. And uh, the Tibetans, I don't know exactly, probably around the 8th century, when, when uh, 8th or 9th century, when Buddhism was coming to Tibet, long after the sutra was written, they translated um, Garba as Ningpo, which in Tibetan means like the heart or essence of something. And some of the... Uh, Later Indian, uh, Buddhist texts, Tathagata Garbha kind of texts, um, at least Sanskrit Buddhist texts define Garbha as Hridaya, as in the Heart Sutra is the Hridaya Sutra. So it's the heart or essence of something. So, um, for that reason, um, one of my friends and um, teachers and translators, um, Karl Brunholzl, um, as a Sanskrit scholar and Tibetan scholar, likes to translate Tathagata Garba as Tathagata Heart. And I really like that too. Um, Gregory here translates Tathagata Garba as inner Tathagata, which I think is pretty good too. I think uh, Tathagata Heart, inner Tathagata, um, Inner Buddha, you could say, or Buddha, Buddha heart, very much like Buddha nature. Um, I think point at the experiential meaning and are less problematic than these other meanings like womb and embryo. Um, womb and, womb, both womb and embryo uh, are kind of emphasizing that there's some things in this latent form that has to gradually grow into maturity, right? Uh, an embryo has to grow into maturity. A womb kind of contains something that will later be born. Um, and uh, I think the more non-dual and experiential meaning of Buddha nature is not like this. It's not something that's, that's, um, that has to grow at all. Actually, Buddha nature is completely, um, Already thus, it's fully mature. It's only that it's also, in its completeness, it's also apparently veiled or hidden or obscured by our habitual thoughts and tendencies, by dualistic perception and habit patterns and um, greed, hate and delusion and so on. But it's not that we have to like increase the, the Buddha nature, the Tathagata Garbha and, and bring it to fruition. See the difference here? Something, it, it's already complete. 
But that doesn't mean that there's not some practice that needs to be done. The practice is more not to spiff up the Buddha nature or even increase it, but the practice is just simply to um, see through the vows that seem to obscure what is already totally complete. So that's kind of a long explanation on different nuances of garba. So uh, I think inner, inner, inner tathagata or tathagata heart are, are both pretty good in that way. Excuse me, Nicole. Yes. This is Tracy here. Hi. Hey, w- will we get a sense of how Queen Srimala is, how she feels about <laughs> Tathagata Garba, what it means to her? Will that? They will. Yes. Well, that's what I thought. Thank you. Yes. Interestingly, not in this um, chapter very much, but as the, the rest of the sutra, this is one of the main um, teachings that's being brought out is to talk to Garba. And there's some wonderful teachings unique to the sutra. But uh, as, as we explore the, um, the, uh, the background a little bit, just to, so now when we start hearing the term, we can start opening to it right away. I'll just say a little bit more. Um, uh, one um, Tibetan teacher from in ancient times uh, lists four meanings of the Tagadagarbha. And I think this is a kind of a nice list to consider. The four meanings of, of Buddha nature or the Chitagata heart are um, one, emptiness. And that is how Sri Maladevi partially defines Chitagata Garva in the Sutra. It is, it is inconceivable, boundless, timeless, uh, ungraspable suchness, which we also call emptiness, shunyata. That's one meaning, aspect, meaning of Tathagatagarva. Another one that sounds different from emptiness is it's minds, the minds, luminous nature. The um, luminous here, we mean like the knowing cognitive aspect of mind. It's the aware aspect of mind the knowing quality of mind. Sounds different from emptiness, but actually these are just two different aspects of the same Buddha nature. Uh, another meaning of Tathagatagarbha is it's a kind of a, a basis. Shimala Devi also. So far all three of these, she, she alludes to meanings. Later she, in the sutra, she calls um, Dharmakaya or Jatagadagarbha, she calls it the um, uh, naturally pure mind. So there's a, that's one meaning, and she calls it emptiness. And this third uh, meaning is it's like the basis, sometimes it would be a storehouse. Sometimes in later sutras, Jatagadagarbha gets associated with the storehouse consciousness. But in this sutra, Fimala Devi just says, it is the basis, the ground, the storehouse for or of all 
all good things, all Buddha qualities, and also the storehouse of delusions. Or um, I think she say this later on. So it's it gives rise to um, all kinds of experiences. That's a third right meaning of Tathagata Garbha. A little bit like a womb gives birth to things. And a fourth meaning is um, Tathagata Garbha is sentient being. So all of us sentient beings are Buddha nature, are Tathagata Garbha. And any being that, you know, perceives like, like an insect, a tiny ant, it's considered a sentient being. It, it has Buddha nature. It actually is Buddha nature, according to this definition. It's a, these are meanings of the Tagata Garbha. One meaning is sentient being. And, uh, so those are the four on, on this particular, um, ancient Tibetan teacher's list of meanings. Emptiness, the mind's, uh, natural knowing capacity. Uh, a, a basis or a um, foundation for the arising of experiences and um, sentient being. And uh, also we hear in the sutra that when it's completely unobscured by, uh, by all the um, you know, mental afflictions and dualistic thoughts and perceptions, then it's called Buddha. It's called Dharmakaya. So in the, in the obscured version, it's called sentient being. In its unobscured version, it's called Buddha. But actually, there's not that much difference between a sentient being and a Buddha from this Buddha nature perspective, right? It's because they have the same fully mature Buddha nature, exactly identical. It's just that one has some temporary, like, you know, veils covering it. So other than that, there's no difference at all between a totally deluded sentient being and a totally awakened Buddha. And that is the good news of Buddha nature. That's the amazing um, value of this new teaching on the Buddhist scene in the third century or so. So... Uh, and Himala Devi will say m- more about this, but that's a kind of a background. Yes, David. So, like, this is a, a really common theme in Buddhism. And, you know, there may be, uh, I don't know if this is a natural question to ask or not, but you have this innate quality to yourself. You've got all these veils obscuring it. And... I, I want, you know, you know, from a practical standpoint, is there really any real difference between whether it exists or not versus it's totally inaccessible to you because of all of these veils? And, and, you know, from a practical standpoint, if it's, if there is, if that is a really meaningful difference, which it seems like it is, then is it just a, the sense of hope that it already is innate in you and you're not looking for it elsewhere? Is that the point of it? Or is there something else that I'm missing? Because there's, you know, as, as, you know, again, it's, it's such a, a, a powerful message and theme in Buddhism. And there's part of me that's like, 
you know, wait a second, if it's all so powerful and everything like that, yes. how is it, how is it that it's so elusive at this Yes, time? great question. Great question. That's because this is what we want to get into. We want to like, we want to not get into like some metaphysical speculations, right? We want to say, well, well, you know, is this just a matter of faith? And um, it's interesting question because sometimes in the sutras, maybe a little bit later in the sutra, there's the, some things are said like, well, even, even great bodhisattvas can't quite at least fully see this Tathagata Garbha. Only Buddhas fully see it. There's statements like that sometimes. Um, and then other times it's it said that, um, that anybody can realize it. And when we get into Zen, our, um, our tradition that we know and love, that's where, um, where it becomes much more accessible. Zen and also like Tibetan, Namzogchen, Mahamudra, they're saying you don't have to be a fully awakened Buddha or even like an advanced Bodhisattva to have some recognition of this Buddha nature. It's actually much simpler than we think. That's the, that's the great news of Zen now is, um, we can actually can taste it directly. And, uh, like in fact, in Zen, um, we have this term Kensho. It's more a Rinzai Zen term that means it's like a, like a, um, a sudden insight and awakening, but like, it's not like a completely enlightened Buddha. It's like, maybe a f- the first insight into our true nature. Many ordinary people um, experience this so-called Kensho. Kensho literally means seeing nature. And nature is short for Buddha nature. So there's this, we can get this glimpse of this perfectly pure, complete Buddha nature that's exactly identical to Buddha's. But part of the thing is Buddha's is, is un- completely unobscured and it's continuously unobscured. So we can get a glimpse for a few seconds or maybe minutes or something, but we can't, but then our, our habits kick back in and they tend to block it again. But, um, but it's an important question because, um, uh, the Zen tradition tries to bring it down to earth so that it's, yes, we can have faith in it, but ideally the faith and the trust in it is because we have some taste of it, actually. It's an experiential, true trust. And it may not be so difficult to have some taste. Um, like in Zen, they start saying things like, early Zen, they start, like Matsu would say things like, um, mind itself is Buddha. Like, wow. Are you talking about just this mind itself? And if I think if we ask Matsu, you'd be, Say, yeah, this mind itself, not the thoughts and the dualistic perceptions and all this, all the content of the mind, but the, this very mind itself that we all have. Uh, and ordinary mind is the way. Matsu also said that. And I think we could hear ordinary mind here is, is a Zen synonym for Buddha nature. And what do we mean by ordinary mind? Matsu himself says, it doesn't really mean all our thoughts and our, and our like emotions of greed and hate and so on. But it is this, this very present knowing awareness. It's undeniable. 
that we're aware, we're all aware right now. You see, this awareness, this one with which we're hearing these words, is it. And if we have a thought like, no, this can't be it, that's making it too simple. That, that's a thought. That's, that thought is not it. But that thought is, um, is emerging from it. Meanwhile, there's the thought, this can't be it. And then we can, we, if we ask, well, is there, is there a knowing of that thought? Is there just a pure witnessing awareness of this thought? Yes. And is that, is that pure witnessing awareness of the thought, the, the same pure witnessing awareness as that which is aware of the screen right now, the visual images that we could start asking and consider what well, maybe it is actually the same awareness. It's aware of of colors and sounds and thoughts and sensations and emotions. And it's not actually changing when all these experiences are coming and going. There's an ever-present, ordinary, plain old, <laughs> unchanging awareness that's um that's empty of any graspable you know handle that we can get on it. If we try to say, this is it, I, I got a hold of it, then we're probably, you know, we're, we're kind of projecting a handle on it to get a hold of. And then it would, it would block its, that would block its emptiness. Its emptiness means we can't get a hold of it, but it's, it's luminosity. It's, it's knowing awareness means that it's not nothing. It's not a nothing kind of emptiness. It's a presence. It's not an absence. Sometimes emptiness refers to absence. In this case, it's a presence. And it's actually not just a presence. It's this very presence with which we're experiencing everything. And then, um, it's, and then as we hear in the definition of the Tagata Garba, it's mixed with our thoughts, like this can't be it, and our perceptions, like you're over there and I'm over here. Could say that isn't that dualistic perception? Yeah, but there's a knowing of this dualistic perception. It's maybe not dualistic. It's just it doesn't have an inside or outside or an in-between. It's just present knowing. And if it's not changing, then it starts fitting in. It, we can we can open, we can try open to the possibility that if it's the same with every experience. Could we call it eternal? Could we call it beginningless? Could we call it unborn? Now let's put aside if it, were, if it was, if it came into being when this body was born. That's another discussion that's profound one that we could, we could consider at some point. But just as we've been talking, we see like we're talking about the same unchanging awareness that at the same time is totally ungraspable. Maybe it could be a realm that's actually eternal. And, um, is it bounded? Is it, um, is it inside our head? Well, that's just a thought. Or if it feels like it's inside my head, that's just a feeling. But there's an awareness, a, a present knowing awareness of the thought. I thought awareness was in my head and the thought that isn't awareness a product of a physical brain? These are thoughts, right? 
And there's a knowing of these thoughts that I would propose is not located in the head. There's no evidence for it being located in the head. So therefore, we can, that's where we can start to open to how awareness is not only timeless, but it's boundless. And now we're starting to fit these, these, these radical descriptions of Buddha nature. It's timeless, eternal, boundless, and, uh, and unlocated, and yet ever-present. And it's unimpeded by all mental activity means it doesn't, it doesn't reject anything. Our awareness allows everything that's happening in it, right? Even if we don't like what's happening, the very fact that it's happening means that awareness is allowing it to happen. And for anything that we're aware of means awareness is allowing it to, to arise within itself. So, um, so, open in this way we see actually maybe there is something to this but it seems all mixed together with my thoughts and feelings and yes that's how it's described but could it be that it kind of like behind all these thoughts and feelings there's just an ordinary this is where the where the, the virtue of the zen tradition says is dharmakaya the buddha buddha's mind itself is very ordinary it's it's exactly like this one that we have, but it's just not fooled by duality. It's not fooled by, um, by solidity of fixed objects and thoughts and feelings that we get all pushed around by. So thanks for asking. And we'll come back, we'll come back to this more, but now as we start to hear Sri Maladevi talking in this sort of sutra language about the Tagadagarbha. See if we can hear it through this lens of we're just talking about our ordinary, ever-present awareness right now. That's all we're talking about. Um, but re- remembering that um, it's still kind of somewhat hidden. In a way, it's not, I, I like to say, it seems to be obscured by greed, hate, and delusion, and so on. Because strictly speaking, it's not really ever being obscured by anything. And it's just like, it's giving rise to thoughts like, you know, I can't see it. (laughs) That thought arises from Tathagatagarva, and that thought seems to obscure Tathagatagarva. But the thought, I can't see it, doesn't really actually obscure it if we look closely because the thought, there's just a knowing of the thought. I can't see it. There's an awareness of this thought. I think this is not quite right. <laughs> there's, you know, and it's the same awareness of, it's, um, I got it. This must be Kensho. It's the same awareness as I can, I'm never going to get this. And I got it. It, those are just experiences. The, the thought I got it and the thought I don't get it are just temporary thoughts. But meanwhile, the awareness of I got it and I didn't get it is exactly the same awareness. That's the one we're putting to and trusting more and more as a true, perfectly complete nature. Chapter 7. Tathagatagarbha.
in your Buddha, Buddha heart. Sri Mala Devi says, the noble truths have a most profound meaning, which is extremely subtle, difficult to know. And here it says, and not of the cognitive and finite realms, which um, is a clunky translation. I much appreciate how Gregory pointed out that the Chinese here is, um, includes the term hishirio, you pronounce in Japanese, which is this kind of centerpiece of Dogen's Fukan Zazengi. Dogen's Zazen instructions in the center of that te- text of how to practice Zazen, Dogen says, think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Non-thinking or beyond thinking in Japanese. Hishirio. And that's phrases in the sutra here. I'm not saying he stole it from Shumata Devi, but it's so, so another translation of this section would be, uh, the noble twos have a most profound meaning, which is extremely subtle, difficult to know, a realm beyond thinking. That's, I'm not, I'm not translating like that. A realm without thinking. That's, um, that's the profound meaning of the Four Noble Truths. We kind of know the ordinary meaning, which is amazing teaching in itself. But the profound meaning of the Four Noble Truths is it's beyond our ordinary thinking. What is known by those who have this wisdom is inconceivable to the entire world. Why? Because this profound meaning of the Noble Truths explains the most profound Tathagata Garba. So that I kind of hear this as saying this profound, deep meaning, deeper meaning of the noble truths, the meaning that's beyond thinking, that meaning of the noble truths explains the Tathagata Garba. Or I think we could even say that is the Tathagata Garba, the deepest, um, inconceivable meaning beyond thinking. Of the four noble truths is the Tathagatagarbha. See if you can hold this bizarre idea that she's proposing. The Tathagatagarbha is the realm of the Tathagata, or the sphere of the Tathagata. Sino-Japanese is Kyokai, something like the realm or sphere of the Tathagata, which is not known by the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas. So there's that Pope again. And um, after kind of early Buddhist teaching of the ones who are looking for this personal liberation. Um, now we could say, but don't the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas have Buddha nature? If an ant does, don't the Shravakas and Prateka Buddhas? Of course they do. Of course they do. But um, it's we could say it's not known or recognized by them. Why not? Say because they're not looking for it. Because they're trying to eliminate these defilements like greed, hate, and delusion in a gradual manner. That is kind of like the emphasis in early Buddhism is a lot about purification of karma. It's a very monastic oriented path with hundreds and hundreds of precepts 
that you have to constantly train your mind to like not do anything out of any slight greed, hate, or delusion. So that's like the Shravika training. Because they're working on that so diligently, they may miss the fact that their nature of their mind, the empty, clear, knowing nature of their mind is already perfect and complete. That's how I would understand this. So the Tathagata Garbha is just not known or recognized by the Shravakas and Vajjaja Buddhas. The Tathagata Garbha explains the meaning of the noble truths. Because the Tathagata Garbha is most profound, explaining the noble truths is also most profound, extremely subtle, difficult to know, and not, that translation, and um, beyond thinking. A realm beyond what is known by those who have this wisdom is inconceivable to the entire world. Inconceivable means you can't conceive of it as a as another experience. I think that's another point we can make about um, to talk at a garba is it's not an experience because an experience is something that arises and ceases in the space of awareness. And there's a space of awareness. It's just, it's just aware of all experiences, but it's not another one of the experiences. But we try, it sounds so good. We want to get, we want to kind of get a hold of it as it's some kind of experience. So maybe, maybe one of the Soto's and critiques of this term Kensho is it kind of sets up this thing. You're trying to get this, Kensho, especially in America, they put, they, they leave Kensho untranslated. It's a verb, right? Kensho is seeing nature or to see Buddha nature. But then we make it into this noun. Did you get Kensho? I want to get Kensho. We make it into a noun, which is, makes it kind of sound like then it's experience that's going to happen in time and space. And there's another way that we can overlook the ever-present awareness in which all experiences are happening. So um, that's why she, Sri Maladevi here says, what is known by those who have this wisdom is inconceivable to the entire world. It can't be conceived of as the way we conceive of thoughts and experiences. We could even maybe say it is conceiving. It is the, it is experiencing. It is the activity of experiencing. And we can never get a hold of it. Because if we do, we would make it into an experience. So, um, and so what's, what's the deal here about why is she making this connection between the noble truths, the four noble truths and Tathagata Garbha? And, uh, um, Prince Shotoku in his commentary about on this section says, um, the first two noble truths, which are called suffering and the origin of suffering, these first two noble truths conceal or hide the Tathagata Garbha and the third and the fourth noble truth called cessation of suffering and the path leading to the cessation of suffering 
those two noble truths reveal the Tathagatagarbha. I thought that's an, a nice little commentary, a little hint at what maybe Sri Maladevi might be getting at here. Um, that's a new understanding of the Four Noble Truths kind of related to Tathagatagarbha. Um, so this profound, deeper meaning of Tathagatagarbha, or Buddha nature, I mean, profound, deeper meaning of the Four Noble Truths is that um, what we call suffering and then these, you know, clashes, these defilements that are the origin of suffering, those um, seem to obscure the Tathagatagarbha. They seem to hide it. Which is just, an, I think we don't have to, you know, have faith in that teaching. We can see how anytime we're like, we're really angry or really greedy. We're, we're overlooking this pure, present, peaceful, ordinary awareness. I think it's a very logical teaching. And that the second two, the cessation of suffering and the path leading to it, but I think particularly the cessation of suffering when, in other words, when these mental afflictions are not operating, that reveals Buddha nature. And it, we all have moments when we're actually maybe in Zazen or walking down the street where we're just not caught up in all our stuff and we're just present and aware and everything's fine. We maybe don't think this is great peace, this is great nirvana, but in fact, if it's really just plain presence, that, um, with no, at least no major suffering at that time, it's, 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 um, it's starting to reveal this ever present Buddha nature. And if there's really no afflictions or suffering, it's fully revealing the, the Buddha nature. And you could say at that moment, it's actually Dharmakaya. So, um, so I think particularly, uh, this point about the third noble truth called the cessation of suffering uh, is particularly connected with the Tathagatagarbha here. And that gets, that gets brought up later in the sutra. She kind of starts honing in on the third of the four noble truths. Cessation of suffering, and you could say cessation of the afflictions that cause suffering uh, at a moment of such cessation which again, I think we all have little tastes of just when our our habits are not all activated and everything's fine. That's when Buddha nature's shining through. But you know, it's very ordinary. So we don't like we don't say, This is Kensho. We just say like, I feel good. <laughs> it's just like we don't even maybe think about it. We don't appreciate it so much, but maybe actually what a wonderful gift. Is um, this the, the kind of the bottom line, sort of status quo, the normal um, is actually everything's fine when it's not when nothing's obscuring it. Buddha nature is peaceful and even joyful when uh, kind of you know peaceful joy when nothing's blocking it. It's its natural state. How wonderful! Ordinary, 
ordinary mind is the way. Uh, so um, that's that paragraph, that chapter on Tathagatagarbha, and a lot more is going to come. She doesn't say much about Tathagatagarbha there, but she's kind of equating it with this deeper meaning of the noble truths, and that's going to come up later too. She's not done yet. Um, chapter eight is the Dharma body, the Dharmakaya. And um, even though it comes later in, at the end of this chapter, I'm just going to read it now because I think it clarifies the chapter that's about to happen here. Um, the very last line in this chapter, Srimala Devi says, Bhagavan, Buddha, the Dharma body, Dharmakaya of the Tathagata, of the Buddha, is called Tathagata Garbha when it is not separated from the stores of defilement. So that's, that's the relationship now of these two terms. Tathagata Garbha, the title of the last chapter, and Dharmakaya, title of this chapter. What's the relationship between them? Um, the Dharmakaya, uh, we talked about this the other day for those who were there at the Saturday talk. I think it's a great definition, important definition in this sutra, a central definition. The Dharmakaya, it's the reality body of the Buddha, the true Buddha body, the Dharmakaya, is called Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature when it's not separated from, you could say when it's mixed together with, the um, mental afflictions like greed, hate, and delusion, including dualistic thought and perception and identifying with being a separate self and so on. So uh, it's this, again, it's the same Dharmakaya, right? The Dharmakaya is identical in a sentient being and in a Buddha, but when it's mixed with the afflictions, it's called Tathagatagarbha. Now this translation says it's called Tathagatagarbha when it's inseparable from the stores of defilement. I think that translation is not quite right because it is separable. But when it's, I think you could easily translate it as when it's not separated from. When it is separated from the afflictions, then it's called the Dharmakaya instead of the Tathagatagarbha. So it's not inseparable. It can always be separated. When it is, um, when it's not separated from the afflictions, it's called Tathagatagarbha. When it is separated, it's called Dharmakaya. Yes, Gregory. Thanks. Uh, two quick points. One, I read the, um, the phrase stores of defilement opposite that she, she does. She says the plural stores of defilement. I read it as the store of defilements. Uh-huh. And in, which is also could also be the storehouse of defilements, which is a, um, synonym for the Alea Vijnana that stores the seeds, the perfumes, uh, the imprints that then arise to become defilements or afflictions is the term I prefer. Yes. Thank you so much for that. That's one of the points that that you made in your um, 
in your notes that I really appreciated that um, it doesn't use the term Alaya Vijnana, but it's very similar because it's talking about a, a storehouse. Um, so it's like, and, and later, like the Lankavatara Sutra starts equating to Tagadagarbha with the Alaya Vijnana, which we call the storehouse. Right. So this is a seed for that. It's a seed for that. Yeah. It's it looks found like later that. in the Lankavatara. Yeah. It looks like it's a, exactly a seed for that. Um, in this, um, in this sutra, the, uh, uh, we, we do have sections of Sanskrit for the sutra that, that appear. We're saving other commentaries and it's, it's, um, uh, I can't find my note right now. Maybe you remember, uh, oh, it's, it's, um, Klesha Kosha. Klesha Kosha. You have that note too, Gregory. That's the yeah. actual Sanskrit term. Kosha means like a treasury or a storehouse. Yeah. Kosha, Alea, and Garba all have a shared meaning. Yes. Of, uh, that can be, uh, in tr- you know, like in a Venn diagram, they all have a, a, a nice. point in the middle that they all connect with. Yeah. Which may, because Garba and Alaya are very similar. Maybe that's why the Lankavatara Sutra could like, these are sounding more and more similar. Let's just connect them. And, um, then we have maybe other issues about, well, then is it, is it defiled or pure or what? But, um, yeah, I think this, this does look like a seed for that. And also the fact that, that it's the, in this sutra, the, um, Tathagatagarbha is the, is the basis and foundation of, of all, um, you know, samsara, I think it even says, which is also very much like the storehouse consciousness model. Yeah. Yeah. The other comment I wanted to make is a little silly, but I think it's, it's, it makes a point. Tathagata Garba, when it's entangled in afflictions, is called Tathagata Garba. When, when it's not, it's called the Dharma body. Uh, so that I, I say that's Clark Kent and Superman. When, <laughs> when, when Clark Kent is in the mundane world, I mean, Superman is in the mundane world, he's called Clark Kent. But when he gets out of the mundane world, he's called Superman. So that's, that's sort of like how I look at the, the Tathagata Garba and Dharmakaya. Great, great analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we might say, well, which one is he really? And we might right. say, well, really, he's Superman. <laughs> and he temporarily takes on this form of Clark Kent, even though when you watch the movie, it looks like he's really Clark Kent and he magically becomes Superman. But uh, right. I think especially in Zen, we have it. The other way around, like we have that koan about like, um, well, that rabbit just sure ran swiftly across the road. That's like a, like a commoner being instantly promoted to prime minister. And his friend says, um, really, you still see it like that? Oh, well, how do you see it? After, after generations of nobility temporarily fallen into poverty. Kind of referring to this Lotus Sutra story of the, the wandering lost son who's truly a wealthy heir, but has forgotten his true identity, like Clark Kent. Maybe, maybe sometimes forgets his identity until he really needs to. His Bodhisattva vow brings it out. Good. So, um, here the beginning of Dharma body chapter. 
if there are no doubts with reference to the Tathagata Garbha that is concealed by innumerable stores of defilement, by, by the storehouse of defilements, then there will also be no doubts with reference to the Dharma body that transcends or goes beyond um, the innumerable, the storehouse of innumerable defilements. And conceal here um, uh, can mean like, um, at least the Chinese term can mean like wrapped, and I think the Sanskrit too, wrapped, tied, um, bound up like that. It's another kind of nuance of how it maybe feels sometimes. I feel like there's this, there is this okayness, my inherent okayness. I call my Buddha nature. I feel like it's wrapped up. It's tangled up in my thoughts about myself and others and so on. It's wrapped and tied up or concealed. So um, this is a nice point, And this is one of the um, paragraphs that gets quoted in the Indian treatises because it's, it's an important point. Again, if there are no doubts about, you could say about the Tathagata Garbha that we've been talking about, that's concealed by these um, greed, hate, and delusion, then there'll also be no doubts about the Dharmakaya that goes beyond all these um, defilements. So I think the point here is like, this is, a, we hear about the Dharmakaya of the Buddha and you know, even before Tathagata Garbha was taught, Dharmakaya was taught as like the, the, the realization of a fully awakened Buddha. And that's so profound to people. And just like David was saying before, before, before this tradition came, we hear Dharmakaya and we think, well, I don't know what that is. And only, only fully awakened Buddhas can realize this Dharmakaya. So what good is that to me? I guess I just have to trust it. Now, this, this sutra is saying, now if we can trust this Tathagata Garbha that we already have, and it is actually, we get these little glimpses, maybe right now. It's just this awareness. It's aware of this conversation. Oh, yeah. I trust that is there. But I see also that, like, now I'm back, like, talking again. I forgot about it already so it's like uh but if we trust that it's there then we trust the dharmakaya that's the same thing the dharmakaya is there and maybe if i stop talking and thinking there'll be nothing i'm not able to know <laughs> that's a line from the song of the trusting mind so you see the point here this ordinary to buddha nature that everybody has if we start trusting this based on our own experience more and more, our little bits and pieces of, you know, gaps between clashes. What's there between two clashes? Buddha nature, shining. And so if we trust this more and more, then um, we trust, well, then that's what the Dharmakaya is, but it's just all the time. And it's, you know, it's it's fully shining without anything obscuring it all the time. But that's all the Dharmakaya is. So I think that's why... The Indian commentators like, whoa, this is, this is a great point Queen Srimala makes here, right? About doubt and trust. And, uh, the next sentence is, in explaining the Tathagata Garbha, one explains the Dharmakaya 
of the Tathagata, the inconceivable Buddha realms or the realm of Buddha and skillful means. So this like this Tathagata Garva teaching is is a skillful means. I hope you can receive it as such. And uh and it's it opens us to this possibility that Dharmakaya is maybe something I can actually understand what's being talked about here. Could it be that ordinary? What about all these Buddha qualities, like infinite love and compassion? Well, we'll get to that. Shimala Baby's going to talk about it later. Um, she goes on. Oh, oh, there's a nice comment from Prince Shotoku on this paragraph. He, he says, um, Tathagatagarbha is taught in order to develop trust or faith. I like the word trust. To develop trust, it can be hidden or revealed. And when we know that, that it can be hidden or revealed, or you could say the Dharmakaya can be hidden or revealed, but it's always present, that develops trust. So we can trust that all sentient beings have this Buddha nature. We can, here we're talking a lot about applying it to ourselves to encourage our own practice. But of course, we can apply it to those pesky things we call other people. <laughs> those people who like are supremely annoying to us, right? And, and really get our goat. <laughs> they share the identical Buddha nature to us and the identical Buddha nature to Shakyamuni Buddha and the Dharmakaya. So it's, um, already that just, just thinking and contemplating this and, and, and kind of like kind of running through it and really, actually it's, it, this is not just a speculation. It seems true. And we, we can remember it in those moments of uh, relating to annoying people. Um, what a wonderful practice. We can actually do it as a practice. Just consciously remember. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing with a Buddha, a hidden Buddha right now. <laughs> and I'm a hidden Buddha because I'm arguing with him too. But like, it's actually, and it's one Buddha nature arguing with itself because there's not a bunch of different Buddha natures. I mean, there's not a bunch of different Dharmakayas. If we can remember this kind of thing. What was that Bodhisattva in the Lotus Sutra who had that thing? He, he always said the same phrase to everybody he met. Yeah, yeah, I, ne- I would never despise you. And his name right, is Bodhisattva, right. never despise. I would never despise you. Yeah, I could say he was, he caught, he had caught on to the Buddha nature teaching, even though that sutra doesn't use the term. And he's, that's what he says is, I can see that you're going to be a Buddha eventually. And that's part of the, that's a big theme in the Lotus Sutra. Everyone's getting the predictions of Buddhahood, like happened in the beginning of this sutra. Srimala Devi got the prediction of Buddhahood, which is kind of implying she had maybe there's a little bits and pieces of occasional obscuration, even though she's empowered by the Buddha to teach the sutra now. Um, it just shows how subtle and just wisps of just the slightest thought of like, I, you know, this word is truth. Oh, wait a second. No, it's just a word. I don't know, whatever, whatever Bodhisattva's obscurations might be. 
Yes. So, um, so this trust and overcoming doubt is an important part of this paragraph. Uh, the mind that continuing, Shimala Devi says, the mind that attains this determination, I think we could also say certainty or trust. It's a little different um, word, but um, certainty or trust. This is what we're developing by these through these teachings and meditating on them. Trust, certainty in Buddha nature. The mind that attains this certainty then trusts or believes and understands the twofold noble truths. In other words, the ordinary noble truths of suffering, its origin, cessation, and the path, and this new um, supreme version of the noble truths um, where cessation of all the defilements is Tathagata Garbha um, and even, you could say, Dharmakaya. The, the cessation is even Dharmakaya there. We can understand more what this means now. What, what the third noble truth means from this perspective. Uh, uh, what, because one who depends on others cannot know all suffering, cannot eliminate the source of suffering, cannot realize the cessation of suffering, cannot practice the path. That's the ordinary four noble truths. And this thing about relies on others, um, Prince Yutoku says, as we might guess, it means they're not fully confirming it themselves. It's like we do, it's like hearsay. We hear that this is um, this is so, but um, that's we're relying on others' opinions, or we're relying on the sutra to tell us, but we don't fully haven't fully confirmed it ourselves. Hopefully, Shimala Devi wants us to not just like believe her words, just like the Buddha. I would propose they want us to like verify it ourselves. Um, but if we're depending on others to tell us uh, to, to develop our trust because we can't quite see it, then we only know this first type of noble truth. Or actually, it's kind of saying we don't even fully um, realize the, the ordinary noble truths. Therefore, Bhagavan, the, the cycle of birth and death, samsara, is both conditioned and unconditioned. Nirvana is likewise conditioned and unconditioned. Being nirvana with remainder, a conditioned nirvana, and nirvana without remainder, unconditioned nirvana. So that's a, a lot in that paragraph, but um, I think as a summary, we could just say, um, uh, the conditioned is, is these conceptual versions of the Four Noble Twos, the conceptual versions of birth and death and nirvana, the way we ordinarily think of these things. And the unconditioned version of all these is the, um, the beyond thinking and the reality that's um, Buddha nature expressing itself. Yes, Gregory. Oh, you're muted. You're muted. Sorry. <clears throat> the, the terms conditioned and unconditioned is the Sanskrit samskrta and akrta or akrta. 
Samskrta means um, constructed, fabricated, put together. So I think the term conditioned is a little too passive because it's like, you know, like something getting conditioned by the weather or something. But really, it's it's our mental construction is going on here, um, and so it's we construct it, we construct a version of the noble truths, and then we have the unconstructed version mm-hmm. of the noble truths. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good one. Um, and the unconstructed is is Tathagatagarbha, yeah. and Prince Sutoku says. This um, nirvana without remainder that's sometimes used in a different way in early teachings. He says this nirvana without remainder is Buddha. So the unconstructed nirvana is Buddha. And uh, so um, that's the... uh, In this chapter... Now the last, skipping ahead to the last paragraphs, Bhagavan, this translation says, this, the cessation of suffering is not the destruction of Dharma. Um, let's see, Gregory translates that as because of the indestructibility of Dharma, it is called cessation of suffering or extinction of suffering. That's pretty good. That's a com- very different kind of like meaning. And I think that works because of the indestructibility of Dharma. It's called cessation of suffering. That's kind of indestructibility of Dharma is like the unchanging Dharmakaya and Tathagatagarbha. That would be one way to read it. Another way would be the cessation of suffering is not the destruction of phenomena or dharmas. And that's how I think that one of the Indian texts um, um, puts it. Uh, in other words, the um, cessation of suffering means you don't have to destroy the kleshas, actually. That would be another way to read it. You, because they're, they're actually the clashes that greed, hate, and delusion are nothing more than Tathagatagarbha expressing itself as in this form. You don't need to destroy them. You just need to see that they are just um, appearances that are seeming to veil Tathagatagarbha, temporary appearances. That'd be another way to hear it. The cessation of suffering signifies the Dharmakaya of the Tathagata. So that's making this point again, right? The third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is Dharmakaya, which is, from beginningless time, uncreated, unborn, unarising, indestructible, free from destruction, eternal, inherently, naturally pure, and separate from all, from the store of all defilements. So that's the cessation of suffering, which is sometimes equated with nirvana. And even in the early texts, nirvana is sometimes defined as the unborn and unceasing, unconditioned, uncompounded. Um, so here it's saying, yes, and we're kind of, we're calling it this positive thing called dharmakaya, 
And also, this Dharmakaya is the Buddha nature of all of us. So putting this all together, you could say, I'm not free from suffering. But you could say, actually, our true nature is already free from suffering. In other words, this this just plain, ordinary, unborn, unceasing, ever-present awareness, it's always the same with every experience. That awareness is and has always been and always will be free from suffering. It is no suffering. It is aware of suffering. But there can still be suffering going on as a kind of obscuration, but the awareness itself is the cessation of suffering. It's called Dharmakaya and it's called Tathagatagarbha for us. So there's an element of our experience that is always free from suffering. Even when I, the person, am totally caught up in suffering, there's just a witnessing awareness of that. It's not suffering and never has. We can find, we can kind of like discover that. We can look for it, not as another experience, but as that which is experiencing. That which is experiencing suffering is not suffering. We can explore this in Zazen and outside of Zazen. And uh, she goes on, Bhagavan, the Dharmakaya is not separate from, free from, or different from the inconceivable Buddha Dharmas that are more numerous than the sands of the Ganges River. And the Dharma body of the Tathagata is called Tathagata Garbha when it is not separated from the store of defilement. That, those last two sentences, maybe we can pick up on um, next time too, because that's that's a juicy bit, I think. That's a part that's quoted in the Indian commentaries also. Right? This is important. Hopefully this makes sense now, right? We've been talking about this. The Dharmakaya is not separate from free from or different from these all these Buddha qualities. We haven't talked about that part yet. But it's not separate from these Buddha um, attributes or qualities like love and compassion. But it and but when it's not separated from the defilements like greed and hate, then it's called the target of garba. But maybe we come back to this because uh, that's a big point that the Dharmakaya, which then also implies our own Buddha nature, has these Buddha, I think when it says Buddha Dharmas, another translation says Buddha attributes or qualities, which I think uh, refers to these Buddha qualities like impartial love and compassion. We actually, Buddha, Buddha loves everyone equally without any like reservations and has infinite compassion for all sentient beings infinitely and impartially. Um, that's kind of definitions of Buddha. And that our ordinary Buddha nature is also like that. How could that be? Could it be that just at these moments between two places, between two defilements, our Buddha, uh, our ordinary awareness is actually like not separate from anybody. It doesn't feel separate, and it's actually not separate from anybody. And that non-separation 
we could call love, I would propose, and the, and the, the kind of natural wish for everybody to be free from greed, hate, and delusion themselves because it's just in a, because it's just a temporary veil and it can be free and we want that. That's natural compassion, naturally there when we don't feel separate. So that's one way to approach this, uh, this, the Buddha qualities or um, attributes are naturally present in Dharmakaya. That's in the early teachings. But because we have a share of this Dharmakaya right now, we have these, our, like when we don't need to um, try to be more loving and compassionate. I mean, we can, of course, do that as a practice. But really, when we when it works and we do for a moment feel more loving or compassionate, you could say, well, that's just our it's our natural nature to be that way. It's not like we created them. Our nature is loving and compassionate. So leave us with that. Um, wonderful implication of Tathagata Garba, Shimala Devi's teaching. Any um, last minute uh, after comments? Yes, Rich. Um, I don't know if this is correct, but this is the way I've been thinking about this, and uh, which is that if you can attain no self then the awareness that is not attached to a self is this awareness is equivalent to your awareness is equivalent to everybody else's awareness. Every other sentient being has the same awareness. If it's not attached to any particular self, it's all the same. It's, and, but we all identify as this body, you know, we all want to identify as an individual with a name and a social security number, et cetera. But we really are just one awareness. If yeah, you, I, I like you, that, that way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. And this like, um, realize no self, meaning no separate individual, um, independent self that, um, you could say that's one of the obscurations that in fact, it might even be the main obscuration in Buddha Dharma is this view that I am, yeah, this separate body and the separate mind and thoughts and history and so on. That I'm not, that stuff is, is emanating from the basis of the Tagadagarbha, those thoughts and feelings. That's all it is. Really, it's Tagadagarbha. And yeah, we can't really find any division between my Tagadagarbha and your Tagadagarbha. If we were to find some division, I would say that would be like a kind of objective experience known by awareness. And if this awareness has no location, or edges or boundaries, it's kind of like um, it's inseparable. And interestingly, in the in the Chinese tradition, they started calling um, uh, Chitagata Garba, another name for it is one mind, the one mind. So um, I think you're onto something. I think you've also, I heard you t- say that to somebody that um, this term big mind that Suzuki Roshi mm. uses is yes. equivalent to Buddha nature. Yes, yes, I think so, yeah. So big I mind. agree, with, I understand what you're saying there. I mean, mm. I, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And then we have this interesting issue when you talk about self because there's like two kinds of self here. There's the self that we usually 
fixate on is like this body and thoughts and five aggregates self. Um, and we believe that to be our true nature, our true self. And then there's this kind of transcendent self. They both are the term Atman. And this, this Berkeley talk tomorrow, I think is going to get much more into detail about this kind of controversial topic of can we start talking about a true self, an Atman in Buddhism that's not an individual, personal, separate self, but is our true nature? So yeah, I think, that. yeah, I, I think in, um, Opening the hand of thought, Uchiyama Roshi talks about the universal self. Like he talks about this big mind and Tathagata Tagarba, I think, in the same way. I don't know yeah. if that's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes he calls it Uchiyama Roshi, like uses his term life. I think, uh, sometimes that's another sort of playful, um, equivalent for Buddha nature in, in his writings. I think that's what he's playing with. There's this inconceivable life. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. May our intention equally extend to every being and place so that all may realize Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Afflictions are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to study them all. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to be it.